Ducks Unlimited opens the vault for a limited time only. This year's Into the Vault National Auction has something for everyone. With over 600 items spanning more than 20 categories, this is an auction you don't want to miss. Offerings include, but are not limited to, decoys, special edition firearms, original artwork, renowned artist prints, vintage DU collectibles, sports memorabilia, hunting trips, vacation packages, bronzes, and much more. And for the first time, a duck boat package that is ready for the water. Please place your bids now. Auction is open until 9 p.m. Eastern on December 2nd. Join the auction now at www.ducks.org slash vault. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. Hey, it's Brent Birch and Casey Short back again with another episode of the Standard Sportsman. Um, once again, I think we've got a really interesting guest that uh, it's kind of a different angle than what we've done recent podcasts on. One of our early episodes was kind of science related, conservation related, and, and it has ended up being one of our more popular episodes, um, which I think is pretty interesting and pretty cool too. Uh, you know, some people may hear oh, it's going to be about conservation or be about science and think, oh, this isn't for me. I'd rather talk about killing ducks or shooting ducks or you know clubs you've been to all that but if you really think about it the science being knowledgeable on the science side of things probably makes you be a better duck hunter i i believe it does Uh, you understand more about what's going on and and uh understand realities of what's going on with ducks and geese versus all the myths so uh today ought to be an enlightening uh, subject for me uh as well as as well as our listeners this is a guy Casey knows and has visited with in the past and i've i've read a couple of his papers and and followed his research a little bit so i'm really anxious to hear what he's got to say but uh, before we get to that and let Casey introduce him let's take a quick break for our sponsors the standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors from the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy once again higdon outdoors has changed the game I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, Farm and ranching or home and gardening, light boots are guaranteed game changers. Now available in youth sizes. All right, we're back from the 
the sponsor portion of the show, at least the beginning of the show. But uh, Casey, why don't you go in and introduce our guest? It's, it's you, you know this guy and and have some experience with him, and then we'll get rolling on some of his interesting research. Yeah, man. Thanks everybody for for tuning in today. We're we're joined by John Vion. Uh, John and I kind of ran across each other really on Instagram. I saw some stuff he was doing uh, with body uh, body mass, body weights, kind of working there, doing some stuff with Jim Ronquist. So paid attention to his research, followed what he's doing. Now he's out on the West Coast, still uh, still studying, still learning, and trying to educate myself along the way, paying attention to what he's doing. But he's got an interesting story from from duck hunting into the research side of things and a, a cool background. So I hope he'll uh, he'll dive into that a little bit and share some of that story because we need more hunters that are research uh, based professionals. Uh, we we lose a lot of that. I know Paul Link talks about that. You know, most of the people coming through LSU right now are not hunters first, so we need more guys like John. So, John, welcome to the show, uh, man. Tell us a little bit about yourself and let's let's hear what how you got into it. Yeah, Brenton Kaysen, thanks for having me. I uh, was really excited for the opportunity to to be on this podcast, similar for the reasons that, uh, Kaysen just mentioned is, um, you know, hunting is kind of one of those things that unfortunately seems to be kind of a dying breed, uh, in, in many aspects. But, um, so I, you know, that I, I'm a hunter and I, I love to do waterfowl research. My hunting's kind of gotten me, you know, as hunters, we're all curious, right? And I always joke that hunters can be some of the best scientists because we're constantly watching, constantly observing. Um, so, you know, that kind of triggered my research focus. And so I was excited to get to be a part of this podcast and um, basically pull those two sides together. All right. So a little bit about me. I essentially am a big uh, duck hunter. I grew up in Arkansas. I was, uh, grew up most of my life in Texarkana, Arkansas, so Southwest Arkansas there. And I, you know, big hunter, always been curious about ducks, how they move. How can I become a better hunter? And so, you know, after high school, that that love uh, kind of continued. I got to um, go to a, a youth camp I, and basically meet a bunch of Arkansas game and fish officials that, you know, I got to really see the passion behind not only just as being a waterfowl hunter, but also working in the management realm. And so, you know, I kind of carried that with me. And that, that was at Five Oaks there, at, uh, George Dunklin's club and went to college and you know, I was medical track initially, but then I moved into, you know, I was also a biology student. So I got to take all of these other courses such as, you know, field ecology and botany. And there was a research opportunity. So I, I got to explore a research opportunity, um, studying noise pollution in waterfowl. And after, you know, I got to do that and, uh, throughout my, my, uh, Hendricks career there and decided after school, I took a gap year and decided, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to do the medical field anymore. And I met with my advisor, Dr. McClung and said, you know, wh what would I need to do to explore this? And, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to go full tilt because I'm very passionate about waterfowl. So we met with Luke Naylor, who was the waterfowl program quarter at the coordinator at the time for Arkansas Game and Fish. Now he's the wildlife chief, but he helped us, you know, think about what was a good strategy for looking for, for, um, for a research career, starting with a master's. So uh, one thing led to another, and I uh, got the privilege to take on a project at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville studying mallard body mass and body condition um, over time and within winters uh, in the uh, in East Arkansas area. So what we call the lower Mississippi alluvial valley, so the lower portion of that. So I got to do that for two years. I worked with hunters, uh, you know, uh, regularly throughout my project. 
And then I wrapped that up and decided I wanted to go continue uh, doing research and actually cultivate an environment in a research program where I could bring other hunting-centric students and uh, students into waterfowl research, kind of like my advisors did for me. And uh, there was an opportunity at UC Davis in the John Evie lab, which is actually Luke Naylor's former lab from the early 2000s. And now I get to work with wetland uh, wetland dynamics and uh, for promoting better waterfowl habitat and reducing uh, pest species that cause public health issues. So, so that's where I'm at now. And, and yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, let's jump into the, to the body mass, because I think that's a really interesting study. I know in some of the stuff that we've helped out with, you know, that's, that's the constant thing, especially putting these GPS units on, like you're, you're weighing hens, you want to know body condition before you attach these right. units to it. So talk a little bit about your study and then let's get into kind of how that affects the the hunter and what this really means to to the average guy. Exactly. So um, basically with my study, so I'll talk about, I'll give you, you know, with, with my master's, there's two chapters to it um, and we can explore that second chapter too. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a little bit of a background and then I'll tell you what we did with that first one and we can, we can talk about it. Um, but essentially, you know, the, I always joke mallard's king when it comes to management because right. the mallard, yeah. So yeah. So the, the mallard is, um, the bigger duck, uh, it's a dabbler. So it, you know, basically dips underwater to eat food, um, in kind of shallower areas. And essentially the idea is, you know, a, a mallard needs about 292 kilocalories a day, um, to survive. And so, Essentially, if we can meet that energetic need for a mallard, the idea is that ducks that um, are smaller have less of a requirement and that we can, by nature, manage for them as well if we manage for the bigger duck. So okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So what's related to, uh, you know, when we think about kilocalories, we think about, you know, uh, energetic acquisition. So what I mean by that is I eat. I convert that food into energy and for ducks, that's lipids. So, so fats and, you know, there's proteins and stuff that are also involved in different parts of the life cycle. But for, for this, I'll focus on, on the fat side of it. So essentially, you know, how do we, how, what's the closest metric related to lipid content is body mass. So basically just a measurement in grams. So you can put a duck on a scale, what's the mass. So we can use body mass as a metric of how well are those ducks acquiring that energy across the landscape? So, so it's a, you know, from, from a, um, you know, energetic standpoint, those carbohydrates are important because from, you know, we think about fitness, lipids are important to surviving the winter. They're important for, um, basically finding a mate and then reproducing in the spring. So that's why we think body mass is important, um, to, to the duck. So that, that's a little bit of a background on, you know, why I studied mass in general. Um, well, I think that was an interesting point that you that you brought up there that maybe a lot of our listeners don't consider or don't think about when they consider like what a duck is feeding on. You know, we know that acorns right. similar to a nut are going to be high in fat, rice, right. more carbohydrates, beans, protein. So I don't, I wonder how many times the average duck hunter thinks about, you know, what a duck is eating and then compares it to calories in terms of a human diet. So I think that's interesting that we're talking about that in body mass. Exactly. And there's, and there's different types of food resources that can serve different purposes throughout the year. So when I think about macroinvertebrates, they're high in protein. 
Um, and, and it can vary based on the bug. That's some of the stuff we haven't really pieced apart that I'm doing with my work right now is kind of looking at, you know, the diversity of bugs and, and diets um, out here in the Central Valley. But essentially, you know, proteins can help with egg development, you know, and, and ducks are not, you know, they're not going to just eat the same thing all year round. It's kind of like us, you know, there may be different deficiencies that we need to eat certain things. Um, so, so ducks do that um, and they eat different types of food resources and tying that back into the hunting. Sometimes knowing what's going on at a certain time of the hunting season can help you understand when to be hunting over certain uh, food resources or habitat types. So it's a very important point you make there, uh, Kason. I was always under the impression or, or, and I've heard people say it now, I, you know, I don't hunt flooded timber. My, my hunting opportunities, my farm doesn't have flooded timber, but I, you know, I've hunted and I've hunted late season with guys in their timber and they, I've heard them more than once in different sets of woods refer to that, the you know, that, and this is late, this is like back half of January late that. Right, you know the mallards have shifted to invertebrates. They're on invertebrates, and and we're typically, and these are some, you know, see these these are some either, typically they're pretty nice manicured woods that they've they've managed water levels, and we're hunting super skinny water that's pretty fresh, and and those ducks are in there, uh, and they always make the comment that they're they're on invertebrates. They've already switched over to invertebrates, and this is the end of January, so. Uh, mm-hmm. No, yeah, because I mean, those amino acids are are are, are important for um, you know having energy to get to get back north, and then also you know you're you're also trying to uh, look pretty uh, for uh, going back up, you know, in terms of your feather structure um, right, for mates, right. and then you know because let me know late season, you know, mallards are starting to pair, pair up, um, and then you know if you if you get a mate, you get to go back to the breeding ground quicker when it's time. Um, so, so yeah, definitely, definitely invertebrates late season play a role, um, as well, but, you know, in terms of like parsing it out too, that's, that's the interesting piece, right. Is with macroinvertebrates, um, we really don't know what they're keying in on or how, I mean, there's, there's some studies, some earlier studies, but I'm, what I'm really excited about is, you know, figuring out how macroinvertebrates, what, what exactly is the role in the diet in certain times of the year, maybe even specifically the species of macroinvertebrates we know they come in different shapes sizes um but you know trying to figure that out we a lot of a lot of macroinvertebrates get digested right there in the esophagus um through enzymes and and things of that nature so in terms of when you open a duck up which has been the previous way of looking at those contents hmm. you miss a lot of what would have probably been there um so now you can use genetic uh what we, you know we call environmental dna so i can take a fecal sample from a duck and match it to a genetic code bank. And actually, I, I did some of the review work on this back in 2019 because we were going to try to fold this into my into my master's, but we didn't have the funding or the time um, to try to connect some of the mass hypotheses we had with land cover variables. Um, but essentially, you can use, you can make that match. And I think the, the early studies did this on rural pigs or, or, and um, catfish, but it was something like twofold the amount of um, diet contents you can find using that genetic technique. So, so it's, it, you know, it's pretty interesting and we're finding out um, so, so many new things using that technology. So very excited to kind of dive into the invertebrate piece there Yeah, on, on my side, but. 
it's interesting that you brought that up, Brent. You're talking about your friends. You know, we kind of got into that a little bit with Brian Davis when he talked about green tree management and, you know, controlling the flood and controlling that water level to kind of manage for invertebrates. So that kind of what your, you know, your story there kind of mimics or mirrors what, what he was saying. You know, yeah, I think exactly. that six inch and lower water level seemed to be the best, the best management practice for that. Right, right. No, yeah. And that's what we're seeing out here is like, you know, uh, in the Central Valley and, and not to veer too much from the from the Mallard work here that I did in the Mississippi Valley. But, um, you know, what's interesting is some of my pilot uh, data, you know, we would essentially in these wetlands, they have to be drawn down because you produce mosquitoes um, or you're or you can get sprayed, which is somewhere around like forty dollars an acre. And, you know, per irrigation, you may have five to ten days on an irrigation before you draw it down. If you're hitting about that four to five day mark, sometimes even day two, you could get hit with that spray. And, 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 you know, sometimes they don't charge if, if, uh, you're, if, if there's enough of a threshold to spray, but you're not producing a bunch, um, is the easy way to put it. But if you are producing a bunch, it can get costly really quick. And if you're a duck property that has say 2,500 acres, that, that becomes costly really quick if you're trying to grow, you know, duck food. So, you know, what we've noticed is providing, if you're able to provide water in the canals, which, you know, can increase soil moisture, things of that nature that actually inhibit some of the mosquito cycles, you, you allow for this shallow base water, which for us is about, you know, can range from about two to three feet, depending on, you know, where you are in the wetland. But essentially we've noticed in the wetlands that we do keep those swales wet. Um, you get a lot more macroinvertebrate production and then, and then in the spring, it's important because you're, you need to eat for eggs, right? You need to have that, that shell development, uh, as a duck. So, but yeah, um, and, uh, not to get too tangential, but, you know, tying that back into, you know, some of the, the mallard stuff that we studied, um, you know, the, I guess I'll kind of talk about like duck energy. Um, so, you know, the Mississippi Valley joint venture basically came together in 2015 and they created some management plans and um, they had acknowledged that uh, the LMAV was below its target objective for, um, for duck energy. So we have something called, you know, I mentioned earlier, duck energy um, or, or 292 kilocalories is what it matters to survive. So we call we have a metric called duck energy days. So it's, it's the amount of mallard sized ducks that you can fit within a, you know, acre of land and for them to be able to meet their caloric intake. So we, you know, we have however many, you know, duck energy days within a plot of land, but essentially we, you know, we're based on the bioenergetic models that, uh, the Mississippi Valley uh, joint ventures run is that, you know, Arkansas is only providing about 54 to 58% of what it, what it should be to support, about uh it's like 1.8 million waterfowl in a 110 day period um so you know that that's kind of difficult right because um and 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 again i'll reemphasize you know this is based on the bioenergetic models it's really hard to quantify a lot of those landscape metrics um that go into that so so it can vary and and those things um get improved as time time goes on but where my study kind of comes into play is that We've noticed in other parts of the world. So uh, I'm thinking in particular France, Sweden, the Central Valley, they've noticed that body mass has increased over time in uh in mallards. And that's interesting, right? So if mass is our metric for relating to 
lipids and we're basing this daily intake. Um, so, you know, 292 kilocalories a day on body mass, if body mass is changing over time, is that affecting our management plans? Um, so what, what's interesting though, is they've seen this in, um, basically in, uh, in France, they've seen it in Sweden. And over there, there was one study that was done that basically attributed it, the mass increases to what we call a milder climate. So, you know, it's warmer, you're not spending as much energy to stay warm, uh, or also improved habitat conditions. And then there was another study done a year later, that basically, it, it was over the same time period, but came out a year later and said, hold on now, it could also be game farm mallard related. So hand reared mallards, which, um, Anecdotally, there's we'll get into that in a minute, but there's there's some mixed evidence. But part of it is that you know a game farm mallard might weigh heavier than a normal mallard, so maybe that genetic introgression is causing mallards to get heavier over time, or it could be a distributional shift, is what that paper said. Um, so you know, are they migrating shorter distances and spending less energy? So then the final study that had been done before mine was in the Central Valley about 2016 is when that came out. And they, you know, had seen mass increases and they attributed that to improved habitat conditions. But th this, this had not been done yet in the lower Mississippi alluvial valley. So, which, you know, as we all know, kind of the, one of the largest or the largest mallard wintering area in the world. So um, what we were curious about was did mallards also increase in body mass over the last 40 years? Um, we also wanted to know how does mallard mass change over the course of a hunting season? And then we also wanted to know how does mallard body mass change with endogenous and exogenous factors? So what I mean by that is age and sex is the endogenous factors and the exogenous factors are rainfall, water levels, cold weather, you know, river gauge uh, heights, things of that nature. So, so that's essentially what our objectives were for the study there. So uh, two things I wanted to kind of clarify, and we'll, we'll get into the, the landscape issue here in just a second. But so you mentioned the LMAV and for our listeners out there, that's the lower Mississippi alluvial valley. So kind of generic terms, kind of the, the bottom end of the Mississippi flyway, right? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. You mentioned in particular Arkansas, was that a, was it a 54% deficit or we only could sustain 54% of the waterfowl that actually came here as far as duck energy days. Right. So uh, in terms of uh, duck energy days, so 54 to 58% uh, of the duck energy that we're based on the models, it's like we predict for this 1.8 million waterfowl population for 110 days, we need X amount of duck energy days. And based on, the bioenergetic models, it suggests that we're only providing about 54 to 58% of that duck energy goal. Okay. So just over half. So I think that's a very telling statistic when, when a lot of people talk about the ducks that are nocturnal or pressure, all these things in Arkansas, or even why Arkansas maybe doesn't harvest what it, what it did not so many years ago. There's a lot of answers that lie in that number, in my opinion. Um, when you've right. got waterfowl here and you and you don't have the habitat for them, you find all sorts of other issues as far as a hunter. Right, right, exactly. And that uh, you know that deficit that we're running under is is a bigger portion of the reality 
as I understand it, it's a bigger portion of the reality of what winners here than corn in Missouri, uh, heated ponds, you know, all these other, you know, all these other theories and, and somewhat myths out there. The, the truth is a, a factor of this is we're not creating enough food for the ducks we have. Exactly. Right. So, and, 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 and one thing to think about too, and, 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 you know, I always play devil's advocate on it, um, is that, you know, this is also bioenergetic model and, and, you know, it's, it's difficult to quantify what should go into those models. And, and, you know, I will do a quick plug and say, you know, something you can, uh, look at is there's a recent paper by Florian Weller. Um, it's an agent based model, but kind of is similar. Um, it, it basically kind of looks at, you know, energetics and landscape, uh, you know, basically does simulations of movement data and behavioral characteristics. It's a pretty interesting paper. Um, but you can, you can go check that one out. Um, that was published this past September. Um, but I guess the, 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 the point that I'm getting at is that, you know, that that's the value we have right now. It's based on those, those models. Um, could there be more food than we see? Um, there could be just because of the way we we've, we've had to categorize it. I mean, it's, again, it's just so difficult. Um, but, and, it, and it's always been kind of a puzzling thing for us, but at, at the current state, that's, that's what our assessments, um, say. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a diff- difficult number to see. Um, but I'm yeah. glad, but it's good that we have those types of models to be able to inform us so we can continue to improve upon, um, the resources on the landscape. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me ask you this, just, and you may not have an answer for this, but this is something I thought about the other day because I was on, you know, I had, I had a run of my farm yesterday, which is, you know, part of the Grand Prairie, you know, Western Arkansas County. And I noticed quite a few f- fields that you could see where rice had already been cut and, and had, has already come back out of the ground, you know, what was left behind residually right, right, right. through the combine. So, you know, a lot of people like always point directly at modern day combines. That's, that's why we don't leave as much food behind. But if you right. see one of those, see one of those fields, it's hard to quantify. I, I get it. But if you see one mm-hmm. of those fields that are cut so early and all the little green shoots that come out of the ground, that, that used to be a little <laughs> a seed of rice, obviously, that a mm-hmm. duck or a goose would eat. So is it more, is, is, the modern day combine the problem or is it how early we cut rice? Is that the real problem? Yeah. So both. it's, it's a common, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's both. a combination. It, yeah. So like, you know, as you know, and, th- and that's kind of one of my, when we, when we talk about some of these results, one of my implications that I kind of point towards, that's one of the possibilities is that, um, you know, as our, our equipment has become more technologically advanced, you know, you don't have, you have these combines that are such more efficient at picking up rice. Um, you know, when you think about like way long time ago, you had machines that might spill a bunch of rice or you may not be getting all the rice out of the, out of the fields that you can now the yields just incredible with some of the technology we have. So there's that part of it. Um, the second part, the earlier harvesting, um, I know that this is a, an issue because I know one of the issues is we want to try to provide water for migrating shorebirds. But when you do that, the exact scenario that you're, you're pointing to is when you do that, you run into the issue of rice, um, 
regerminating and starting to pop up. And if you think about it at that point, you've now locked up that one rice seed <laughs> that, that uh, the duck could have eaten. Um, so there's that piece of it. And then the other part is, you know, the waste grain that, that is left uh, could also be depleted by other wildlife over time. So, oh, yeah. you know, over, over time, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of factors um, that kind of go into that. I, it, and I think that, I think that's a good take home message is that it's not, there's not one magic bullet or yeah. uh, that actually, or, or, or um, solution that can be attributed that there's most likely multiple factors. And again, that's, a, in, in, and it's interesting because getting back to my point earlier, I was duck energy days. Sometimes it's hard to catch those kinds of things because it's just so highly variable across the landscape and what people are doing. Did someone do fall tillage and, and berry seeds? You know, it's, it's, you know, that those are the kinds of things um, that, that kind of make that kind of large scale quantification difficult. So, yeah. Yeah, 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 makes sense. And yeah, I, I knew there were several factors. I just those two get brought up a lot, or really the you know it's modern day combines, it's modern day combines, and then of course there's the geese, and you know we obviously winter m many more geese than we used to, uh, and they're a factor picking through those dry fields before we start putting water on them and and all that. So I get that, but um, but going back to the body mass thing, we haven't really right. talked about what your kind of what your findings were from starting taking data from 1979 until today and kind yeah, of, yeah, of, yeah. of what of what what you've seen and and then you know be able to do this in a short succinct way because that's a lot of data uh but to be exactly. able to say <laughs> uh say what uh what happened you know what you've seen the trend over time and then why do we you know, why do we think that is including what I read out of the paper that this, this body weight actually falls during, during the season. And I, I'm, exactly. I could assume what causes that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you could kind of talk about that real, real quick, and then we'll kind of, we'll kind of transition onto one of your other pieces. Exactly. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit, um, just kind of what we did and then I'll jump right into the results. So, Essentially, you know, I kind of spoke about the objectives earlier. We want to look at mass over time. We want to look at um, how does it change with, you know, climatic variables and, and you know, over the course of the season. So what we did is we were like, okay, let's weigh harvested mallards. And and I'll preface and say there are, you know, we we understand uh, there's, you know, there's biases in hunter harvested mallards versus live mallards. And, and, and I won't go into that detail, but I'll, you know, focus on the, the harvested mallards piece. Um, but what we did was we first compiled historical data. So I have to give credit to Ken Reineke. Um, he's kind of the mallard guru um, from from our area. And I uh, essentially he uh, had been thinking about this stuff since, you know, the 70s and on. And so from the from 1979 and then in the 80s and then uh, also in the early 2000s, uh, Ken Reineke had been collecting mass measurements. Um, cause he'd been thinking about some of this stuff and which is kind of cool to think about, right? Because when I was telling you about all those other studies, those were like later 2000 studies. Um, so like the fact that Ken was thinking about this stuff is pretty cool. Um, and so for, as a student, it's fun to get to relive some of that, um, especially before I was born. So he, he handed over that mass data. And then I got in touch with, uh, Brad Dabber out of university, um, or sorry, uh, Texas tech university. And he had some data from the nineties. 
So I compiled that data. Um, and then David Kremens, who's my uh, co-advisor, he had data from uh, the mid-ish 2000s. So that was from 1979 to 2017. I compiled all of that. And that was from all over the Mississippi alluvial valley of Arkansas and Mississippi. So then I come in in 2019 and I decide, you know, we're going to collect some more data in my years. So to make it short, essentially, I sampled um, harvested mallards from hunters on uh, private land. So we went around to private land sites. Uh, so everywhere from Five Oaks Duckwoods to um, all sorts of other places uh, throughout the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. And then I also sampled on public land. So I would go and stand at boat ramps in public areas all across. And I think we ended up with 101 sites that we sampled from across the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. And again, it was all the way from the northern border, all the way to the southern border, and then uh, some sites down uh, Mississippi there. So once we collected all those mallard measurements, we, you know, we ran it through our statistical programs and looked at it in relation to, uh, you know, year. So over time, we wanted to look at the day of season. So the within season trends of time. And then we also were curious about, you know, what happens to mass after rainfall. So what happens to mass after a river goes up, you know, when I relate that back to hunters, we, you know, a lot of people like to hunt the woods when the river's rising. So that was kind of an informed hunter informed piece. And then something we call cold weather severity index. So we wanted to look at that as well. So a combination of factors that create a severe uh, weather uh, situation for ducks. How does that affect mass? So just diving straight into the, the results we found, we found that body mass had increased over time uh, among all age and sex groups. And um, what's interesting is I find this one pretty cool. So the study in Europe, um, had essentially found, I, I want to say it was a, off the top of my head, it was around 7.3 to 7 points. It was about 7.3 or 0.6 increase in um, mallard body mass among juvenile males. And we had found that juvenile males had increased by about 7.6% in the lower Mississippi Lillian Valley. So like, it's kind of crazy to think like internet or cross country, you know, um, that there was a similarity there. And I point that one out because that was the one that was mentioned in juvenile males was in, uh, mentioned in their paper. So we found that trend. Um, and then, you know, what we also found was that body mass had decreased over the course of the hunting season, uh, among all age and sex groups. And then we found that body mass, uh, after rainfall events increased over time, as well as over river, uh, rise events. So, when as rivers began to rise, duck mass increased. But the one interesting thing we didn't see, and it was what we call like, you know, really close in, in terms of, you know, finding a relationship. So, you know, there's, you can make inferences about that, but essentially we found that there was no relationship between cold weather um, and mallard mass. Um, and, and we can get into the, I'll, I'll stop there, but we can get into the, to the why on some of these. Yeah. Well, that kind of supports the, the thought that, you know, it's water is what kill ducks. You know, when you, you put fresh water in a landscape, a duck gets out of its routine pattern. It gets into new habitat, new areas, and that's usually when they get harvested. So it kind of breaks that cycle of survival that they find, you know, in a consistent pattern they, they set into. So interesting that that study kind of backs that up as far as a rain event or a flood event adding body mass. Right. Exactly. Um, it makes sense, right? Because I think it's, I think the magic number is around 48 hours, you know, like a duck can find 
water. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and as you both probably know, when water goes on the trees, it's kind of explosive. Um, as some people say, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty neat that they can do that. So again, that, you know, hunter informed variables, uh, that's, that's where that, that comes into. Um, but yeah, I, you know, one of the things I'll talk about, I guess, briefly is like, you know, why was mass increasing over, over time? And I, and I think I, you know, I, I sent you guys a graph. I know listeners probably can't listen to it, but it kind of, you know, makes, generates an interesting talking point, but essentially, you know, the three things that those former papers bring up as increasing, you know, why is mass increasing over time is, is it climate? Is it, you know, uh, hand reared mallard genetics being in the population? Is it landscape alteration or is it shortening migration distances? And, you know, I'll, I'll start with the ones we don't really think, and that's, you know, landscape alteration, curtain, you know, based on the duck energy day metric, we don't necessarily think that, oh, we've got tons of food on the ground. That's increasing mass. That may not necessarily be the case um, based on, you know, landscape characteristics. So we, we don't really think that may be the reason. Shortening migration distances, as you probably know, you know, there hasn't really been strong evidence to suggest um, that there, there has been change in those, in, in, in migrational differences and shift. Um, but, you know, Mississippi flyway studies typically suggest that distributions are more broad, if anything. So we didn't really think those were attributing, but the two we kind of narrowed in on um, were the climate and game farm mallard genetics. What's interesting is, is that with the game farm mallard genetics, you know, originally Phil Levretsky had done a study that suggested around, you know, 40% of samples contained game farm mallard DNA in the, in the um, Mississippi flyway there. But they, they came out with a recent study that suggested that that may not be the case for the lower Mississippi alluvial valley. They may be getting quote unquote wilder um, uh, based on the, the genetics there. But what's interesting is there's some studies to suggest that um, game, you know, game farm mallards may make a, uh, a duck heavier, but then there's also uh, or game farm mallard genetics lead to a heavier duck. But then there's other studies to, to suggest that maybe this might not be the case. Maybe it's that wild mallards are heavier. And it's just because they're, you know, there's game farm mallards are proportionally weird, <laughs> if that makes sense, um, just just based on um, how they are compared to wild mallard. So, you know, there's definitely more research needed on that side. And I'm excited to see what comes out uh, in the future on that kind of stuff. But the one I kind of lean towards is climate. Now, in my paper, you'll read that we don't find any like big long-term trends, but that's also because climate is very, very hard to study. It just, you know, you can you can do a, a climate shift in like three or four years in terms of just, you know, depending on the variable you're studying, um, they take these swings. But what we had seen from some NOAA predictions for the South was, you know, there's, there's these trends and in, in precipitation. But when you get to right about 1979 to present, you kind of see this upward increase in extreme precipitation events. Um, and, you know, I, I find that incredibly interesting and, and being that like, you know, point back to what you said, case and, um, talking about the water, you know, that that's where my, I lean towards in terms of, of knowing we ultimately don't know. Um, but that, those are my thoughts as in terms of, you know, maybe this is a, a, uh, a water on the landscape driven trend that we're seeing. Um, but again, you know, more studies needed on that, that year, you know, why mass, why exactly is mass increasing over time? Well, let me, uh, let me ask you this real, real quick before we go to, to one of your other research, uh, efforts. 
would there be any case to believe that their body weight dipping during the season is either due to stress because we're out there disturbing them and shooting them or is it uh more akin to them not roaming and foraging as much because they don't want to get shot <laughs> um you know so they're not eating as much they're they're staying close to wherever a safe zone is and maybe not going and and seeking food to to drive that you know that body mass up during the actual hunting season right so that's a really good question um you know it's hard to and and we can talk about the disturbance stuff soon um it's it's hard to attribute those indirect effects to the 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 condition metrics there are studies that talk about that stuff um i would say you know in terms of mass decreasing over the course of the season the two kickers um that we've seen you know cuz cuz about this time frame in other locations that that we studied you see a similar like dip in mass even historically since like the 80s um so what the two big thoughts are or that it's an endogenous control. So our ducks preparing for what we call spring, a spring departure weight. So I'm, I know that I need to eat a lot to survive the winter, but if I eat too much, I may not be able to get to the breeding grounds quick and getting there quicker is a more fit duck. You have better fitness. So when it's time to fly. So there's been a theory that these ducks know to, to drop their weight down. There's been studies to look at the endogenous side of things. But then the other thought is, is it exogenously related to the food resources? So essentially is, you know, uh, is there a resource availability issue over time? So, you know, we have all that food resource in the beginning of the duck hunting season, but then, you know, we think about, you know, not necessarily rice, but like, I think soybeans can, you know, they're not, they're not already, already the best food for ducks, but those, you know, if they're inundated in water or flooded with water, they can lose about 1% of energy a day. So, you know, and again, not necessarily rice because rice can handle moist soil situations, but um, essentially, you know, is, is it, you know, is it depending on the resource, is it degradation over time? Is it overuse or, or not necessarily overuse, but use of that resource by other wildlife um, to where when you get to late winter, you just don't have as much re, uh, food resource. So those are the two that, you know, scientists kind of lean towards is the, is the hypothesis there. But parsing those out has, has been proven extremely difficult. And, th and there's definitely a scientific need to understand, is it an endogenous thing? Like, is it the duck doing it on its own? Or is it related to the food resources over time on the landscape? So I, I would say that. I, I won't say that disturbance doesn't, you know, uh, disturbance can have an impact on, on body mass and body condition. There's been lots of studies to, to, to suggest that, not even in ducks, but in other birds. Um, so that's definitely an important consideration that also needs, um, a link to be done through, you know, a scientific study. But, um, but those are kind of the, those have been kind of the historic, the first two I mentioned are kind of the historical thoughts behind why mass decreases over the season. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Cause we see in the white front studies, like we see a similar, a similar situation. We see like the Louisiana birds will typically stay they'll initiate spring migration later than say birds in arkansas now the average hunter would right. assume that it gets warmer there first they would migrate first but that's not the case it appears to be that because the body condition is worse for the birds in louisiana due to decreased habitat and probably 
increased disturbance with crawfish farming that those mm-hmm. birds realize they don't have the body condition to go up to the ice line and, and fight that cold. So they hold in the South longer than these birds that, right. are, that are up here with a little better habitat, a little better body condition. So that kind of. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now, now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh, Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's a amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switched from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. And it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box. So I've got all the kids ammo, gauge reducers, hand warmers, whatever they're going to need in one box. And all I've got to do is grab it and I'm ready to take them out in the woods. Yeah. The Yeti Go box is, is definitely the way to go and keep it organized, accessible and protected. And it's no matter what size you pick, it's a must have for waterfowl season. Tom Beckby started in 2015 with the simple goal of making classic sporting apparel for sportsmen. Since introducing their flagship tinsaw jacket eight years ago, they've carried that goal forward with a full range of classic wax cotton jackets, canvas and leather bags, and field gear for waterfowlers and upland hunters. You can shop for their full collection at TomBetby.com, in their Birmingham, Alabama, and Wilson, Arkansas stores, and at over 150 retailers across the United States. Backed by a lifetime guarantee, find out for yourself the difference between quality over quantity. Kind of, I guess, mirrors kind of what you're saying, but it also gives rise to what we want to talk about next, which is the disturbance study and and what we see and what you guys learn from that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Let's get into that one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of course. Yeah. That, that study essentially, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about my background that I did that at Hendrix, um, as an undergrad. Um, and essentially, you know, it was before my master's work even came to be, but it has a lot of, uh, real implications. So, you know, kind of the origin story of that study was that, you know, the, the, the sound stuff is kind of a hot topic. It has been, um, I've always been curious, although I didn't study like shotgun noise, cause that's kind of, it was, you know, proven more difficult to study. And we can talk about that later, but essentially I was like, you know, how does, how does me as a human on the landscape, how, how does my noise or, you know, me traversing through areas, how does that affect the duck? And in a way that I can't see. Um, so we, we call that the indirect effect. So, you know, when I say a direct disturbance, I may be referring to mortality. So like shooting a duck, but how does my, how does what I do uh, that elicits a response that's not direct mortality? How does that influence how a duck behaves? And so, you know, growing up, going over to East Arkansas and hunting all the time, I was always fascinated. You know, you, you can drive your car down the road and you'll see hundreds of ducks in, in fields. But then sometimes in cold years, it was fascinating to me that you'd see ducks in the ag ditches on the side of the roads and they didn't care. Right. Like, I mean, like they, they, they would, you know, they would sit and feed in those little roadside ditches. Um, but then there were some scenarios where they didn't do that. And that was always fascinating to me. So at the time, uh, a study came out, um, by, uh, Chris McClure, essentially studying phantom roads and essentially what a phantom road is. I put a bunch of speakers through a 
through a field or a forest. And I recreate that swishing noise of a car driving through the forest without having a road there or the visual cue. So you're focusing on that indirect effect, the noise. And so what they had found was that in, in their work that a third of the bird community um, had avoided that noise source and, um, and body condition had uh, decreased and also stopover efficiency. So the ability to gain a better body condition. So that all of those things came together to me, you know, when I went and started working on stuff with Dr. McClung, I was like, you know, we really, we don't have a lot of noise studies in waterfowl. And we did the big giant like search online and there were, I, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but, but um, I think it was like close to nine studies. Um, and, but, but there were, there were a few that had basically explicitly examined noise. So we, um, essentially wanted to uh, recreate a similar version of this phantom road. And we basically built a speaker system. I got funds, I applied, did proposals. I got got some funds to build a speaker system that uh, was run off of uh, a ATV charger um, that I had in my dad's garage uh, so, I, so I could make it portable. So we went out and we recorded traffic noise off of I-40. So again, just the, no honking, nothing crazy. It was just the sound of the swish going by if you were to stand on a highway. So the tires on asphalt sound. So we recorded that with a fancy, uh, uh, microphone. And then what I would do is plug it in my speaker system and I would go out like I was duck hunting. I'd get there before light and, um, put out my speaker system. And as soon as a duck landed, I began my study so we had a pre, during, and post phase. So essentially, we the 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 pre phase was no noise, so that was about twenty minutes long. Then we did a during phase, so I slowly turned the knob up as if a car was coming in, playing that swish noise. And then once it was up to where I needed it, I uh, would let it run for twenty minutes. And then at the end of that during period, for twenty more minutes, I would turn it off. I'd ease it back out, turn it off. So what I was doing in that time frame was I was recording how close ducks were approaching the speaker um, and uh, what, what were those distances. And so essentially, we then ran uh, some analysis on what we call the, the closest approach to a speaker and then the probability of occurrence uh, in different distance bins. So when I refer to a distance bin, that's like zero to 25 meters. 26 to 50 meters and so on to hundred meters. We had, you know, where, where, the, where were they more likely to occur in that range of distances from the noise source? And we found that, you know, birds had uh, approached the speaker very closely um, in the prefaces. But then when you look at, uh, if you read the paper, um, there's a graph there that shows that in the during and post phases, ducks were more likely, or I should say, you know, water birds, because um, we, you know, it was more than just ducks but they were more likely to be um, at greater distances from the speaker during and even after the speaker was turned off, they were more likely to be away from the noise source. And uh, we also found that as you went across that hour long period, so again, you have the 20 minute pre period, 20 minute during and 20 minute post, as you went along that hour, the probability of you occurring further from the noise source increased over time. So, that's what we found with that study. Um, and yeah, so I'll, you know, I'll open up to your thoughts, but, but, but that's kind of, that, that's kind of what we did and, and, and what we found. 
Yeah, because it's kind of interesting. You know, you drive around, um, and it and it seems, depending on where, it seems like ducks and geese get pretty acclimated to to traffic. Um, you know, highway wise, obviously, you know, going every direction out of the Stuttgart area, you can see ducks literally sitting. You know, probably, I don't know, a hundred feet off of the asphalt you know in some places right uh, with, right with seeming seeming no now if you stop the car you obviously make them <laughs> make them nervous and pe- plenty of people mm-hmm. do that the the farm that i grew up hunting is is uh, right on highway 165 which is the main highway from little rock to stuttgart mm-hmm. and this particular farm winters a lot of birds uh, so people can see them from from the highway and right and some of them sit so close a lot of people will stop and and you see photographers with big huge fancy lenses because mm-hmm. it'll be a it'll be a sizable amount of birds worth taking a picture of but some of them aren't, aren't very far out there at all and feed right there and we've even got a spot uh, that we're able to hunt that's an old it's an old roadbed and it is not far off of the highway uh far enough to be to be legal uh, it's not that close because you could hunt I, I believe it's 100 feet off the center line of the highway you mm-hmm. can't hunt within 100 feet of it but so this is farther than that but it's close enough i mean you could definitely hear the cars wishing by and it doesn't bother those those speckle bellies come in there without hesitation because they come in there to get the gravel and the grit of that old road mm-hmm. bed uh, it's a rice field now but uh, but that's also what's also interesting too and i thought about this when i saw your paper a lot of times closer to the highway is also where the the grain trucks the grain carts are parked so when mm-hmm. the combine come and and, and unloads, uh, you know, waste grain, and everything else gets dumped in these big piles. And those are typically pretty close to the highway. And, you know, if your farm is near a, near a highway or a road like that, and that they don't hesitate to get up close. Um, and mm-hmm. like I said, uh, not bothered by cars and trucks and now big motorcycles. Like we, we seem to have a lot of motorcycle traffic. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll see like eight, eight, 10, 15 motorcycles together. They're obviously out for a Saturday ride or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now those will those will kick them up. Uh, airplanes really kick them up, uh, especially mm-hmm. the geese. But uh, but cars and trucks, you know, normal p- civilian cars don't seem to bother them at all. Right, right. And, and I'm glad you really brought up that that point because you know one of the things that I'll, I'll say two things. One, kind of a behind the scenes thing that I worked on a year after I did the field work for this was I was actually collecting macro inverts and soil samples while I was out there. So when I say soil samples, they weren't fancy. It was just, you know, I was collecting D nets of what, what was there, but also having the mud. And I was trying to basically pick out seeds and macroinvertebrates. And we were hoping to try to find like, was there a combination of the two that elicits a response to ignore the noise um, to, to, to basically develop some sort of threshold. It proved very difficult um, as you start getting down to species and thing of, things of that nature when you're trying to quantify. I've always sat and thought about how we could do that a little differently. And again, you know, you, as an undergrad, you have time constraints um, before you have to move on to other things. But, you know, we we tried to look at that um, so that, you know, that's actually something that, that you know, we, we don't really know the thresholds is a, is a good term. So we don't really know how much decibel noise causes them to vacate or, or leave an area. Um, we also don't know those species specific responses. So, 
you know, a white front versus a mallard versus a teal, how are they, you know, perceiving that noise? And then the other big thing that you kind of, you hint at is habituation. We don't really have any studies on, on how to ducks habituate. Cause for example, like you, you bring up an extremely valid point. And I, the hunter side of me thinks about that is like, yeah. So like road noise. So what? Cause you know, there's, I see ducks on the side of the road all the time. And I think I hinted about that a little earlier. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, um, you know, when over time in those areas, we see them, there's most likely a habituation to, to some of those cues. Cause they realize that car isn't going to hurt me, um, more often than not. And they probably have that, um, they, there's an idea in my, or I always think that they probably have that exposure constantly, right? Cause as they're migrating, wherever they're at, they probably, um, have some form of that. And there's exceptions, you know, when you're in remote breeding areas and, and, and especially even when you winter, but they, they probably, you know, there's probably a habituation aspect of it. Um, some of the places we were studying were, you know, e- there was a variation between, um, more urban, more rural. So what's, you know, what's interesting to me is how, okay, we see that response in the study, but how, how do they habituate over time to that? And that's what we don't capture. Um, because, you know, we, we wouldn't, you would have to stay there longer and record more data in different ways, um, to try to track that. Like how long did it take for them to come back? If you repeated the study in each location multiple times throughout the duck hunting season, would they get used to that noise source and then eventually start coming back in closer and not care? Um, those are the kinds of things that probably happen on the landscape and probably what we see, right? Like the end result of that, but we don't, we really don't have any studies. So that's a you know quick plug if anybody's looking for a study to, to, to look into is some of this habituation uh, work. Um, and that can have implications towards the hunting thing, right? We talk about hunting disturbance and, and um, you know, mud motor noise and gun noise. You know, should I use 12 gauges? Should I use 20 gauges? Um, what's, you know, interesting to me is in, in some of my second chapter work was the land cover stuff. And as you probably will see, it'll hopefully come out. I know that y'all got to kind of see some of the graphs that I sent to you, but hopefully it'll come out maybe by the time this uh, podcast releases. But in some of those woody wetland areas, despite all the disturbance, we see that a lot of our heavier mass stocks, which would relate to higher fitness, were coming out of those woodier wetland areas, which is where we would think, you know, there's a lot more hunters. So in my head, it, I, I think sometimes about how adaptable a duck is. And maybe they're more adaptable than we think. And maybe they can habituate to certain noises and, and there's thresholds that we need to uncover. So I'm really glad that you brought up, brought up that point because, again, our study does not capture the habituation piece. Um, right. But it shows that there is some sort of response. But how long does it take to, not, uh, to, to reverse that response or, or get back to the base level response, which is a normal, you know, a duck or a water bird sitting in a wetland and ignoring those kinds of things? Yeah. Well, I know, I mean, they definitely get comfortable, uh, and, and habitual, like you're saying, because they, right. You'll see them in consistent areas and you will inevitably see, and it, it's happened. It's happened. I, I can't tell you how many times some knucklehead will take a shot from the highway okay. at, at them sitting close by. And I know Kaysen's done some work on his farm to try to create a barrier, uh, between, you know, places waterfowl sit on his farm and the road because of that same issue. You know, why, why somebody thinks that's the thing to do or okay to do 
or Try maybe it. they'll yeah. get away with it. I, it's beyond my comprehension, but it happens and it happens a lot. And and that's because there's and you think maybe, OK, do the ducks and geese sit that close to the road because they think they're that's probably they're safe there because, you know, nine bazillion cars go by every day and nobody messes with them. Until you mm-hmm. get some some knucklehead that decides slow down. I'm gonna I'm gonna lean out the window and I'm gonna take a shot at that speckle belly yeah. um, that's sitting so close to the road. Right. So they definitely get comfortable. Uh, and, exactly. And it's, it's it's too bad people think that's an opportunity to try to take a shot at them. That's just nuts. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they do get comfortable. We see it here. We've got a highway here on the farm, and then lots of gravel roads that we travel. So. You know, white fronts are showing up now and it's amazing how comfortable they will get with traffic but the slightest variation even on a gravel road you know we can drive back and forth through the farm going to work every day consistent and they think nothing of it drive by 30 40 yards from them slow down a little bit and man they get nervous they notice the change and they react to it so right yeah, i guess they just they, they adapt and, and get used to those get used to a certain level of disturbance as long as it's consistent and safe. Right. And, and I think about, you know, attributing that to the hunting piece. I mean, well, you know, on to your point, you know, it could be, this is me just speculating. It could be, you know, that maybe when you put in a new road, it's uh, initially disturbing, but they begin to figure out, okay, maybe I won't get shot at 90% of the time when I'm in this zone. Um, So, you know, in terms of, from a management perspective, you start to think, okay, is it worth me putting in a new road? How long will it take? A, or, or let's say I have a wetland that I'm going to put a bunch of food resources into and they're going to put, thinking about the conservation planning side of this, they're going to put a road in. Should I worry about putting a lot of time and energy in how, like to a certain distance of that road for X amount of years? Or how long does that take? Th- those are the kinds of questions that we want to parse out that we don't really know yet. And that and that's the exciting part because as hunters, we kind of, we see that, right? We see some are using space near the road some aren't um and and is it varying with food resources is it habituation it's probably a combination of all of them but we we do know when we think about like from the hunting side you know one of the cool things get thinking about the mass work a lot of studies um don't find uh when they're sampling harvested mallards from the timber you don't see a lot of acorns in uh, the diet contents just from a cut you open, look at what you got kind of thing. I think in my study, I sampled 2,300 birds somewhere around there in my two years. And I think I had 40 of them that visibly had acorns in their uh, esophagus. Um, And, but we know as hunters, they use the acorns, right? Like that's that in my head, it's always like, why is that? That's so weird. Well, you know, one of the things I, I speculate on is, there's there's research out there that shows that they may vary their their uh their use of those those woody wetlands when there's hunters present right so like the idea is that okay i know that there's a bunch of hunters in there in the morning time if it's a heavily hunted area i may go try to use resources somewhere else then come back later um because we know in like states like arkansas usually got to be off by um done hunting at noon off by one kind of thing um so the idea in my head is that, you know, a lot of the times you're har- in the morning time, you're harvesting ducks in the woods that may not have had those acorns in their crop yet. They may not have had a chance to eat those acorns. That's right. Um, so the, yeah, so that's why in my head, I'm like, yeah, you see that. Um, but it, it kind of goes back to that duck figuring out what are those disturbances and, and maybe I'll use that place, but I know that maybe I want to avoid the shotgun blast and go somewhere else and then come back later. Um, 
so you know i i always say that we we underestimate the 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 intelligence of a of a duck <laughs> when it when it comes to those kinds of things um but again that's something to be to be looked at and and then going back to the environmental dna stuff um you know that's where some of that becomes powerful right because you can take a fecal sample and see what the duck's been eating um that may be digested that you may not catch from a harvested harvested bird immediately so so anyways it's just attributing back the disturbance side to even you know even to the hunting side of things yeah before we before we move on and speaking about how you know how kind of how smart they get it's amazing to me how they can tell the difference between a you know semi running down the highway and as noisy as those things are they're perfectly comfortable but if it's a side by side or a four wheeler they are they're yeah. gone they will they will oh, yeah. exit exit stage left yep. i mean automatic and so it's it's kind of wild how they equate that that uh if that buggy's coming down the road i better i better hightail it out of here versus a you know a you know series of trucks rolling down the highway it's uh it's pretty fascinating that they they associate that noise with it's time to go yeah well, they get sh- they get shot at off a of four wheeler and side by side. Well, you know, they're not yeah, stupid. Yeah. That. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah, yeah, and and it's you know you think about attributing you know they probably if you think about a duck on a roost before it's time to hunt you know what is it the magic hour is usually when when first light hits. Um, but beforehand, you know, imagine being a duck sitting in the woods and hearing all those noises. It's like okay, when I hear those noises, it's probably going to be on around here pretty soon, kind of thing. <laughs> so so it's you know it's. One of those things that's really interesting to me is, you know, it kind of gets in the psychology of it. So, you know, there's some former, I mean, way old psychology studies where they talk about ringing a bell um, with a dog and showing them food. And then if you take the food away and ring the bell, the dog starts to salivate when the food's not even there. So, you know, talking about like, you know, uh, I think that gets into some of not uh, conditioning, not body condition, but conditioning um, birds or some of us like to say educating um, uh, some of these birds. So that, and again, that's the kind of, that's a little intricate stuff. That's, that's hard to study, but if we could, you know, there, there's so many windows for management and understanding the biology and ecology of, um, these birds, if we could figure out some answers to, to some of that stuff, it's, it's quite interesting. The standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Sitka gear, turning clothing into gear. No name is more synonymous with waterproof clothing than Gore-Tex. And over the last 50 years, Gore-Tex has changed how we look at waterproof clothing. Waders have come a long way since I borrowed a pair of felt-sole Converse from my mother to go on my first hunt in the woods. The Delta waders from Sika Gear have made disposable waders a thing of the past. From the Gore-Tex lining to the breathable fabric to even the boots on them, I can stay comfortable day in and day out in the field. From high-performance base layers to windproof, waterproof outer layers, Sika Gear has you covered. Gunner, the team that brought you the world's best dog kennel, recently released a training bumper designed to better assist working dogs and their owners throughout the field and training obedience process. The Gunner bumper has a taper vented design to promote proper holding and maximum breathability. It also has an adjustable removable rope with two grip and carry positions. And because they crafted this with a proprietary rubber compound, it's sure to be a durable and reliable tool. Maybe the thing that sets it apart the most, though, is the removable cap that allows you to utilize an interior cavity for wings, feathers, and any other scent training necessity. Most of the product reviews reference that, including this five-star review from Mark. I absolutely love my new bumpers. The ability to scent train with these is saving me on live, frozen birds, 
let alone the ease and convenience of using the bumper versus a thawed bird. Now I simply take a piece of the wing and slide it into the bumper. Historically, I went through a bird every couple of days. Now one teal has lasted me two weeks. They're extremely versatile and like everything Gunner, extraordinarily well-designed and constructed. All right, John, this has been a, it's been some really good information. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to science stuff. So I enjoy the body mass and the disturbance stuff, but let's, uh, we're going to move into a little segment we do here at the end. We're going to do uh five and five. So we're going to get some questions from Brent and I, uh, I'll lead off. You're, you're out in California now. I know you're an Arkansas boy, but, uh, who grows rice better, Arkansas or California? Oh man, that's <laughs> yeah. You're putting me on the hot seat on that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will say, you know, I am partial to my Riceland rice. Uh, it goes pretty good in the gumbo. So I have to, I have to, I have to be partial on that one. Um, but I will say one thing I learned out here was apparently, so I, I, you know, I've always asked, uh, I work with a manager that, um, uh, Andy Atkinson, who used to be, he was the Grey Lodge manager, which is kind of like, in my mind, kind of like a Bayou Mita for them um for 37 years so he's really ingrained in the community and he told me that the california rice makes better sushi rice um than than over back there in arkansas which i found fascinating because i didn't think about it and you've got a lot more sushi out this way so yeah, yeah so to each their own i guess <laughs> yeah all right i think i'd i think i'd heard that before too um not that i ate sushi I, in fact i definitely do not eat sushi but um. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so when you've been out there I, I, have you gotten to hunt in California? Oh yeah. So I've, I've gotten to, I've gotten to hunt. I did mainly private last year, getting my bearings. Cause you know, um, some of you, you both might know, but you know, the regs are a little more strict out here. Um, so navigating those is, is, is always a challenge, but, um, this year I'll be doing, uh, I've already got the gear set up to, to start doing some more public land hunts on some of the coastal marshes. So, so yeah, yeah. so that, that's actually coming up soon. Well, what's uh, what's the biggest difference between Arkansas duck hunting and California duck hunting? I know you got you know not regulation wise because you know they they have bigger limits. I think you can kill ten speckle bellies in in California. And oh yeah, higher yeah, marrow yeah. limits. But but actual you know get down to the hunting part. What's the what's the biggest difference? Yeah, so you know the big one for me. Um, well, one I'll say you know of course we don't have the flooded timber like we do back home. I I have to be. I sometimes I'll say getting ready for the duckwoods and I forget there's no duckwoods <laughs> here. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the big thing you know you've got a lot more rice. Um, well, I say a lot more. Not I I don't know the 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 landscape amount uh, difference, but essentially it's you know it reminds me of East Arkansas in terms of the rice out here. Um, but they've they've got a lot more like mountain ranges. So if I walk. Um, if I go out on the interstate, maybe 20 minutes out of Davis, I can see the Sierras on my right and the coastal mountains on my left. Um, so what's really interesting is you can be duck hunting, um, especially some of these like moist soil areas and, um, which is probably like the biggest part of it, um, in terms of the habitat and you, in the winter time, it's not uncommon to have snow capped mountains in the background and mallards landing in your decoys. And I, I think that's, that's oh, wow. actually a unique and beautiful thing um where i am at Birdhaven ranch which is a uh, fun fact it's owned by paul bonderson who was the ducks unlimited president after george dunklin um small okay. world uh yeah. yeah and he he his property butts right up uh oh, where the southern end overlooks the sutter buttes which is the um smallest mountain range in north america um but but yeah it's it's just absolutely gorgeous on on that front you know in arkansas we hard to see mountains <laughs> through the through the trees <laughs> Um, it's a lot, a little more flat, but, 
but yeah, so I'd say that's kind of the main difference. And then also you got the saltwater influence. So if you go out towards the coast, you start running into um, other ducks, um, you know, that kind of use those areas. So, so it's pretty neat. I, for the first time in my life, I'm having to learn tidal change in wetlands. So I don't get stuck in a mud flat. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. So for the, for the 10 to 15 year old kid who, who might be listening or, or has an interest in the science side of things, what, what piece of advice would you give them as far as trying to navigate forward into your field? I would say, you know, one, stay curious and stay true to yourself, you know, especially, especially if you're a hunter. Um, as it seems like in today's day and time, it, it can be difficult to, to talk about hunting and, you know, as, as times change, I think we all know that, um, with, with the greater community, but, you know, staying true to yourself on that, if, if you're curious and you want to learn more, reaching out to, um, a, uh, agencies. So like, like Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, for example, like, you know, I gave you my background, look how often they've been involved in my life. I still am. I'll probably go back this winter and I'm going to help them with, uh, some of the, uh, hunt camp stuff that they're kind of starting up for, for college students. And, and so like, you know, they've all, I've, I've worked for Arkansas game and fish two times in my life. So they, they've just, you know, they've been integral and, and it's not just the, the, it's not just the, um, you know, managers or front office people. It's, you know, I've had waterfowl program coordinators, wetland program coordinators, uh, chiefs, commissioners, people that have really, never been afraid to, you know, they say, come on in, you know, it's like opening a door. So I think that's always a struggle as a 15 year old, because you, you're trying to, you don't really have a bunch of connections yet, right? You might have some through your parents, but you, you really want to make, you're, you're trying to figure out ways maybe to, to capitalize on that. So definitely reach out to people, even at a university, you know, one, one recommendation I might say is look up waterfowl professors and, and go look, um, and maybe shoot them an email, say I'm young and I would love a map as to what you think I should do. Um, or could I come out with you sometime? And 90% of the time, they're super cool about it because we get excited. A lot of us are waterfowl hunters that are waterfowl scientists. We get excited about the next generation. Um, and then, you know, and I'll give that quick plug too. I know I'm stationed out in California, but, um, you know, if there's anybody, my, my Instagram direct message is always open. If there's people, all, and anybody ever has a question, don't feel afraid to, to ask me directly. Um, and then also, you know, if, if you're trying to figure out hunting, I can always help. I, I, I message people all the time on that kind of stuff, trying to help them figure out how to get involved in that. So, so stay curious, stay true to yourself, ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. All right. Well, I'll kind of piggyback off that. Cause this, this is something uh, that I kind of jotted down earlier and you've, you've alluded to it a little bit, but you know, this, uh, you see it growing and it seems in the waterfowl world and it might be in, in other animals that the people are studying but the kind of the citizen science piece is seems exactly, to be yeah. uh growing a little bit you know we always had we've had the you know clip a wing put it in the middle of the envelope mail it back they can they get age and all kinds of other things off of those but uh you know D uh, ducks unlimited is doing the the duck dna thing so it, you alluded mm -hmm. to the you alluded to the farm mallards earlier or game farm mallards which are basically human raised uh, descendants of human raised mallards, which are infiltrating our wild mallards. Um, so if you haven't heard of that study, duck, you know, the duck DNA, but how big a deal uh, do you think this is going to keep growing? You know, a, a kind of a citizen science where, where it's probably going to typically fall on the shoulders of hunters, uh, to participate in these different things. Do you see anything else coming down the, the pike that maybe, 
allow a hunter a hunter that's interested in the conservation and the science side to get involved? Oh yeah, I think there's incredible opportunities. I I would say you know the stuff that Phil Lebretsky's doing, and and I think Mike Brazier's helping with it. You know, it's all there's that Ducks Unlimited effort. Um, I feel like that's scratching the surface, which is exciting, right? Because that that's something that hasn't been done before. Um, we we do that with the the envelopes, like you say, that go go to U.S. Fish and Wildlife to help look at harvest and age and sex numbers um, on on that. But you know, this is kind of a, a new thing. It's like getting to look at the genetics from ducks I harvest, or you know, hunters harvested themselves. I think that you know this is opening windows for for more involvement and and you know, like you said, piggybacking. I think that anytime you can find opportunities like that to get involved um, are incredible and and are, are great for a CV. Don't be afraid to put down that I've participated in 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 this effort or I'm active. You know, because it shows you're actively seeking those things. Um, I think that, you know, there's different citizen science projects out there outside the duck world. So like, um, there's different like birding ones where you can report the birds you've seen. Um, I think there's one called like the Christmas, Christmas bird council. People help with that. So they go out with somebody who's kind of got the certification for it, but they go birding and, and record what they see that goes into like big databases that, you know, researchers like myself can use, um, there's, you know, right now there's one called snapshot USA, which is more re- uh, university organized um but it's game cameras across the u.s and we just did one on a study on possums and predator prey dynamics with uh, coyotes but essentially i called my friends back in texarkana and all over southwest arkansas and said hey we're gonna do this study can i come put some game cameras out i'm just gonna check them once a week and i you know they were like super pumped because then i could also show them all the deer (laughs) on their property and and things of that nature so you know there's definitely tons of ways to get involved and heck you could even google uh, citizen science programs, um, for wildlife. And then, you know, but in terms of waterfowl, I, I see that, you know, there's some really cool, I I don't know of any specific ones other than that off the top of my head right now. Um, but you know, this, this is, it's, it's a really cool time to be involved because we're, there's these large scale efforts that we're realizing we can reach out to, you know, hunters that are already on the landscape. Um, to get involved. I mean, heck, my master's was a similar variation of that for two years. It was, hey, can I come to your private property and sample your ducks this morning? And and I always report back what I was finding um, to them on, on the Mallard Mass stuff. So yeah, I, I think that there's so, all sorts of things that are going to come come uh, down the pipeline. Um, exactly what they are, I don't don't know for a fact, but, but I think we're in an interesting time to get involved in that kind of stuff. Well, I guess that... Uh... Maybe this brings us to our last question here, John. If there's one thing you could change about duck hunting, what would it be? Right. So, I th- this this is definitely a tough question because, you know, when I when I think about duck hunting, it's kind of a I think we can all relate. It's a it's a it's a personal relationship. I I always like to think of duck hunting more than a sport. Um, it's it's a deep rooted culture kind of thing. Um, and it's a personal relationship with a, with a resource that we're very passionate about. So it's hard for me sometimes to be like change duck hunting. Like I don't, I don't want to change it, you know, cause it's like, I just think it's a cool experience in itself. But the one thing I would probably change is, um, you know, it varies across the U S but, you know, duck hunting is probably one of the hardest sports to start getting into. Um, and just because of the monetary barriers and and trying to figure out land access and even learning from somebody, you know, as we're naturally drawn to it because one, we probably had someone show us how to do it. But for me, the big piece is I love it. It gets back to why I do the waterfowl research is 
why when I blow my duck call like this versus that, that duck responds a certain way? Why does that change over the course of the season? Um, there's a lot of puzzle pieces we accumulate as duck hunters and my wallet, uh, is probably in tears sometimes at the amount of gear that I <laughs> purchased to, um, to, to duck hunt. But when you think about the person that, that is getting into duck hunting or wants to get into duck hunting, it, you know, I get questions all the time, like, how do I go about buying a shotgun? And, and, and here in California, it's even stricter, um, with background, all sorts of the background checks and things of that nature. Um, or how expensive is it? I may come, you may come from a non-hunting background, but you're interested. Um, and, and from a conservation perspective, that license sale is important. So when the, bug, the, the spark is there, how do we cultivate um, continuing that tradition uh, or, or in, in that individual who's inspired to do that? Because then that may lead them to teaching their kids someday. So for me, the one thing I would change is that the, the cost barrier, the introduction barrier to duck hunting, I, um, it, I, I like to dream to, and hope that, you know, maybe it would get easier over time. Um, but I, you know, on a half glass full perspective, that's where I encourage hunters. You've got the gear, you got the know-how, um, take more kids hunting, take people your age, even that may have not gone hunting before. Cause you never know somebody might find, uh, a, a new love for a new sport. And you may have just sparked several decades of a new tradition in someone's, uh, culture and lineage there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's an awesome take. And, um, it, yeah, we could all do better in some of those regards too, especially getting the youth involved and, and not only involved and taking them out there for the, the killing part, but also, you know, understanding what's going on with the, the game that they're chasing and, and start that, 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 that just a little glimmer of that conservation thought process or that stewardship thought process as early as we can versus being consumed by limits and pictures for their social media and everything else. Um, I think the sport would be better for it. So, um, right. But anyway, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, that was a, that was a good stuff. We appreciate, uh, taking, you know, case and already alluded to it. We're both kind of nerds when it comes to this, all the science side of these ducks. Cause we want to have a better understanding because we think it helps us uh, not only with the hunting side of it, but how how we're going to, you know, keep this keep this sport going and and ducks to be productive and and keep coming back because this you know they give us so much, uh, we feel like we kind of owe something back to them. So uh, you know we're big fans of this research and understand more about what's going on because it seems like more is going on now than ever before. So um, you know that'll that'll wrap it up for us and and we sure appreciate you coming on. Uh, for our listeners out there, you can, of course, keep up with us on social media uh, at The Standard Sportsman. Uh, websites, www.thestandardsportsman.com. We want to definitely say thank you to all of our for our advertisers that that help us uh, fund this project and get this kind of information out to all the duck hunters out there. So we appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks.
All right. So a little bit about me. I essentially am a big uh, duck hunter. I grew up in Arkansas. I was, uh, grew up most of my life in Texarkana, Arkansas, so Southwest Arkansas there. And I, you know, big hunter, always been curious about ducks, how they move, how can I become a better hunter? And so, you know, after high school, that, that love uh, kind of continued. I got to um, go to a, a, a youth camp I, and basically meet a bunch of Arkansas game and fish officials that, you know, I got to really see the passion behind not only just as being a waterfowl hunter, but also working in the management realm. And so, you know, I kind of carried that with me and that, that was at Five Oaks there, at, uh, George Dunklin's club and went to college and, you know, I was medical track initially, but then I moved into, you know, I was also a biology student. So I got to take all of these other courses such as, you know, field ecology and botany and there was a research opportunity. So I, I got to explore a research opportunity um, studying noise pollution in waterfowl. And after, you know, I got to do that and uh, throughout my, my uh, Hendricks career there and decided after school, I took a gap year and decided, you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to do the medical field anymore. And I met with my advisor, Dr. McClung, and said, you know, wh what would I need to do to explore this? And, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to go full tilt because I'm very passionate about waterfowl. So we met with Luke Naylor, who was the waterfowl program quarter, the coordinator at the time for Arkansas Game and Fish. Now he's the wildlife chief. But he helped us, you know, think about what was a good strategy for looking for, for, um, for a research career, starting with a master's. So uh, one thing led to another, and I uh, got the privilege to take on a project at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville studying mallard body mass and body condition um, over time and within winters uh, in the uh, in East Arkansas area. So what we call the lower Mississippi alluvial valley, so the lower portion of that. So I got to do that for two years. I worked with hunters, uh, you know, uh, regularly throughout my project. And then I wrapped that up and decided I wanted to go continue uh, doing research and actually cultivate an environment in a research program where I could bring other hunting-centric students and uh, students into waterfowl research, kind of like my advisors did for me. And uh, there was an opportunity at UC Davis in the John E.D. lab, which is actually Luke Naylor's former lab from the early 2000s. And now I get to work with wetland, uh, wetland dynamics and uh, for promoting better waterfowl habitat and reducing uh, pest species that cause public health issues. So, so that's where I'm at now. And, and yeah. Cool. I hope, hope that was better. <laughs> no, I, I am completely uh, honored that y'all uh, wanted to hear about my stuff. I, uh, you know, any, anytime there's something hunting related and, um, you know, also research, waterfowl research, I'm very passionate about it. So anytime there's an opportunity to discuss that and in, inform others that I, I appreciate the time. So. Right. Well, yeah, thank you all. And, you know, thank you for highlighting that stuff. I, I definitely will.